0: <shriek> shalom, shalom, friends. I want to take a brief moment of silence for Yom Hazikaron, thinking about uh, Israeli Memorial Day, thinking about those who lost their lives in service to the protection of the Jewish people. Okay, friends, thank you so much for being here today. It's great to be with you for session number six on Avicenna, Um, not one who would as commonly be known um, for various reasons, Um, but let's start with a poll question based upon one of his ideas that we will explore together on islam option 1 islam influenced judaism a lot option 2 judaism influenced islam a lot option 3 they both influenced each other a lot and option 4 they're really so different that any influence is really very minor so what is your view based on um your understanding we know a lot about 20th century Christian Jewish influence. We even talk about Judeo-Christian ethics. some people talk about that. Um, but what do you make of the Islamic Jewish relation? Some of you may have no clue. Feel free to not vote um, if that's the case. Um, but take your best guess if you if you can. Okay, let's see our results. No one thinks Islam influenced Judaism a lot. No, uh, 25% think Judaism influenced Islam a lot. 63% thinks it goes both ways and 13% thinks so different very minor. All right. Well, we're not going to answer that question today, but I did want to keep it in the back of our minds as we look at some of that um, some of that topic today. So friends, who are we? What are we? Are we our bodies or are we something greater than our bodies? Today we skip about 1350 years to the philosophy of the Islamic thinker Avicenna who brought the work of Aristotle into the realm of soul. Just about the entire development of rabbinic Judaism as we know it occurred occurred during this gap of time since Aristotle, from the lives of Hillel the elder and Rabbi Akiva, to the codification of the Mishnah, to the redaction of the Talmud, to the prevalence of early medieval rabbis such as Saddiagon, but Jewish philosophy meaning systematized thought about knowledge itself, doesn't really emerge until the medieval period. Of course, much went on in history, both inside and outside of the Jewish world, including the destruction of the Jerusalem temple. But in the realm of philosophy, the time between the ancients and medievals is considered something of a footnote. One reason for this gap in our timeline is that during the intellectual prominence of the Muslim world, during the Islamic Golden Age, right, Avicenna's living in the Islamic Golden Age, Aristotle's works weren't translated into Arabic until around 800 to 950 CE. By the way, Avicenna, his name is, um, uh, is Latin, what they call Latin corruption. Um, but, it, but in Arabic, his name is Ibn Sina, son of Sina, which is kind of similar to how we say Ben, Ibn is son of, or we say Ben in Hebrew, right? Like my name is um Shmuel Ben, Shlomo Noam, like the son of your of your parents. Um and he's in the Persian region, today what we would be known as Iran and Iraq, and, um the the particular region he's in. Avicenna then became the primary Muslim philosopher. Of course, that's not a picture of him, but just you know, to state the obvious. <laughs> um, Avi, um, but it may very well be an, an accurate painting of him. Avicenna then became the primary Muslim philosopher to engage with the thought of Aristotle, joining the conversation we left off with over 1,300 years prior, before Maimonides became the key Aristotle-influenced philosopher of the Jewish tradition, and before Thomas Aquinas did the same with Catholicism, Avicenna, or as he was known in Persia as mentioned, Ibn Sina, was among the great philosophers of Islam. Unlike Rambam and Aquinas, though, Avicenna was not primarily a theologian, and he did not adhere rigidly to the doctrines of Islam, although it's said in in his circles that he met. He memorized the Quran or mastered the Quran by age ten. Although he did feel that he could radically challenge Aristotle at times, Avi Avicenna un- affirmed the Aristotelian view that the world is eternal, right? Which is um, was something we talked about last week: the world is not created, which is also going to go in the face of Islam, even though that clashed with Islamic theology. So that's that's kind of a radical thing he did over there. He differed with Aristotle, though in that for Aristotle, the soul is associated with the intellect. It can, in a sense, exist beyond one's death, but only as a manifestation of the rational knowledge that one acquired in life. For Avicenna, the mind is fundamentally distinct from the body, and it includes not only the knowledge we might ascertain, but also our experiences and our very sense of self. Because it's immaterial, the soul is immortal, and able to endure after our physical bodies have perished. Traditional Jewish thought both agrees and disagrees with Avicenna here. Yes, the soul exists after death and can go to be with God, so to speak. However, there is also the doctrine of the resurrection of the dead, that these souls will be put back in resurrected bodies, at least for an earthly messianic period. Avicenna arrived at his view that our selfhood persists after our death, through a thought experiment he famously called the floating man, a kind of precursor to the thought of Rene Descartes, who we'll come to later, of course. The floating man is recorded in his treaty on the soul in his book of healing. Avicenna proposes that we imagine the following. This is kind of a, a fun thought experiment. One of us must suppose that he was just created at a stroke fully developed and perfectly formed, but with his vision shrouded from perceiving all external objects created floating in the air or in the space, not buffeted by any perceptible current of the air that supports him. His limbs separated and kept out of contact with one another so that they don't feel each other. Then let the subject consider whether he would affirm the existence of his self. There's no doubt that he would affirm his own existence although not affirming the reality of any of his limbs or inner organs, his bowels, his heart or brain, or any external thing. Indeed, he would affirm the existence of the self of his while not affirming that it had any length, breadth, or depth. And if it were possible for him in such a state to imagine a hand or any other organ, he would not imagine it to be a part of himself or a condition of of his existence. So according to this model, If we had just come into existence, but we didn't have any senses, we were, for example, blindfolded and floating in the air, would we still know of our existence, even without any senses? So what makes me, me? It can't be my body, Avicenna argues, because I can know that I exist without my body. Similarly, Descartes later imagined a demon trying to tell us we don't know anything. You might remember this part of Descartes where he's kind of um, uh, troubled by these demons. But the one thing we can know, Descartes says, is in our existence because one can know that they're the one having thoughts. I think, therefore, I am, right, can be understood in so many different ways. But one way in this sense that we can know um, that we are the one thinking what we are thinking. Both Avicenna and Descartes, in their thought experiments, seek to demonstrate that the mind or self is the primary thing that we know exists, even more than we know our bodies exist. Even without or ignoring our bodies and senses, Avicenna argues, we can know the self exists. Therefore, we can know the self exists independently of the body. And if the soul doesn't live and die with the body, the soul must be immortal. Now, this was somewhat problematic in Muslim theology, because in Islam, the soul lies dormant with the body until the whole person, body and consciousness, is resurrected in the afterlife. And so Avicenna was attacked as a heretic for this view that the soul lives forever outside of the body. To ha the physical resurrection of the body, is also one of Maimonides' 13 principles of the Jewish faith. The soul in Jewish thought pre-exists the body, lives in the body, goes to be with God after the body's death, and then is put back in the resurrected body in the Messianic period. And ultimately back to the world of souls. So it kind of goes back and forth. The soul predates the body, is with the body, leaves the body, returns to the body, leaves the body, in in classical Jewish theology. Nonetheless, Abhisattva's dualism became popular among Christian theologians who liked how Avicenna made Aristotle's ideas translatable to a worldview with an immortal soul. Now, by the 13th century, though, the Christian thinker Thomas Aquinas argued that Avicenna was wrong, that a more accurate interpretation of Aristotle intertwines the mind and body more. Aquinas believed the mind to be the same self as the body. For example, you feel a pain in your leg differently than you notice a hole in the wall. That must be because the pain is affecting you and the hole in the wall isn't. Your body and self must be truly linked. But Descartes in the 17th century returned the dominant mode of thought to a dualism, a conception that is metaphysical like Plato's, not materialistic like Aristotle's. Today, most philosophers reject mind-body dualism because of neuroscience developments. Avicenna was very interested in physiology in his time. He wrote many he wrote me- medical encyclopedias at that time period, but he didn't have access, of course, to the scientific tools that move most thinkers closer to Aquinas's view that the mind and body are connected. We can explain how different parts of the brain in the physical body are in control of different parts of what we are thinking. Gilbert Ryle critiqued dualism as arguing for a ghost in the machine. We can explain how the machine works, he thought, without suggesting there's a ghost in it, right? The idea that mind is separate from body. There's some kind of floating ghost separate from, um, you know, neurotransmitters. Even though current philosophers reject Avicenna's dualism, they do agree that there's a self with a first-person view like an eye, which is not something that can be totally explained by scientific theories. So so what should Jews think of all of this? Judaism does not have much of a dilemma with mind-body separation. Judaism is less concerned with the exact location of consciousness and more concerned with the soul, how that consciousness connects and relates to the divine. We don't have a problem with the not fully proven idea that the mind is located within the brain But the fact that the aspect of human consciousness cannot be definitively located in the brain does indicate the potential for the immateriality of the soul. Whatever the case, we imagine the soul as the connecting point between the material and spiritual world. And in this life, it is stuck with our body. Avicenna forces us to deal with the question of what it means to have the gift of consciousness and what it means to have a body that does not seem to be fully unified. These questions about what it means to be alive resonate for those of us spiritually engaged. Rabbi Aaron Soloveitchik wrote that after experiencing a stroke and suffering from partial paralysis on his left side, he felt that, quote, it is as if I have become completely detached from my left leg and my left arm. With this realization, he argues, that he gained a new awareness of the way in which the body and soul are not one and the same. He writes over here, this is probably the 1990s, um, the fact that I'm now constantly under the impact of a biological sensation of carrying a foreign detached object consisting of the left side of my body corroborates the proposition that the human soul is a separate entity having an identity of its own, and extraneous to the body. In a normal person, the body and soul are synthesized and integrated in such a beautiful and well-integrated pattern that for all practical purposes, the soul appears to be imminent in the body. However, other thinkers, such as Martin Buber, tend to emphasize the fundamental unity of body and soul. Even if the soul ultimately remains separate from the body, we should strive for a harmonization of the two as much as possible. He wrote in his work, The Way of Man, according to the teachings of Hasidism, what is meant by unification of the soul would be thoroughly misunderstood if soul were taken to mean anything but the whole man, body and spirit together. The soul is not really united unless all bodily energies and the limbs of the body are united. The Baal Shem interpreted the biblical passage Whatsoever thy hand finds to do, do it with thy might. So the effect that the deeds one does should be done with every limb. Even the whole of man's physical being should participate in it. No part of him should remain outside. A man who thus becomes a unit of body and spirit, he is the man whose work is all of a piece. Now, it's, it's worth um, a reminder here that the tar meets mitzvot, that is the attempt to turn all biblical mitzvot into 613, that the rabbis in the Talmud relate the 613 to the limbs of the body, right? That that there are 613 of these, as and they correspond with the, sorry, the limbs and sinews correspond with the positive and the negative mitzvot to 613. So to conclude here, different from Avicenna's view that our bodies and souls are fundamentally distinct In Judaism, in Buber's articulation at least, we find that the body and soul, while not necessarily the same, are both essential and are deeply connected to one another. Okay, friends, that's a mouthful on Avicenna. Um, And it's it's fun to reflect on how a um, early 11th century common era Muslim thinker is so deeply connected to questions that um, Jewish philosophers we're wrestling with as well, and Christian philosophers. One of my other many hopes in this series together, you know, discussing these things together, are that we not pin Judaism up against other ideologies and traditions. It's not, for example, some people will say, I reject that idea, that idea is Christian. Well, just because it's a Christian idea doesn't mean it can also be an idea that resonates for me, or or, is it, or it could be a Jewish idea or I reject that idea, that's right wing, or that's left wing, or that's like, that's a Muslim idea, right? That notion that everything needs to be in tension with an opposite, um, you know, or that um, something that emerges from a space outside of our own um, need not be accepted, ought to be rejected. And so I do think that rather than taking such a confrontational approach, we can take an approach of ideas strengthening each other, um, they're kind of partnering with each other, like a chavruta, like a bar plugta. the notion that um, that encountering philosophers and philosophies that don't resonate for us either may come to resonate later, or they may strengthen philosophies that do resonate for us. Um, and so I appreciate you sharing that. The last point I wanted to share, just picking up on something Steve said as well, is on the notion of collective soul. We may think of the... of the self as this closed boundary or the soul as the closed boundary. But there is this notion of collective mind, collective soul, this notion of a collective consciousness. And in the space of intersubjectivity, the space that I meet with another person is not you, it's not me. It's a space between me and you. And that's an interesting place to be in spiritually, uh, the, the, the space between us. I mean, that's a space I hope we can enter here as well. And what is that space? That space is not in my body. That space is not necessarily in my mind. It's not just imagination. There may be a reality to a space between you and me that we can meet each other at. That's called empathy. That's called imagination. That's called bridge building, whatever you wanna call that space. And I think Avicenna might also be pushing us towards that. How can we um, get beyond ourselves? How can we transcend the self and self-interest in order to truly be with another person? And that's a remarkable thing to experiment with today. Have a great day, everyone.